Amen. Well, as we are rolled into this new year, uh, this is commonly a time of year, a season, when many of us uh, attempt to hit the reset button on some areas of our life and commit to change some things about our life. And by hitting the reset button, what I'm talking about is making New Year's resolutions. I won't ask you to raise your hand how many of you have made those or how many of you are still keeping the one you made last week. Um, But recently, I came across an article that talked about the the top 10 resolutions for this last year, 2016. This uh, news outlet did a survey and they put together this article. Top 10 New Year's resolutions for 2016. Anybody care to guess what was the number one item on the list? Hey, there you go. Yeah, that was number one. The number one thing that people want to change about themselves. Lose weight. That was the, the most popular resolution. Now, following that resolution, the rest of the list went like this. Number two was get organized. Number three, spend less, save more. Then came number four, enjoy life to the fullest. <laughs> Five, stay fit and healthy. So those are the people who already have lost the weight and they want to keep it off. Six, learn something exciting. Seven, quit smoking. Eight, help others achieve their dreams. Nine, fall in love. And closing out the top ten, spend more time with family. So those were the most popular resolutions made this last year, again, according to this this news outlet that put this list together. Here's the thing. That's the top ten list. But our success rate in in keeping those resolutions is not very good. We're not very good at keeping our New Year's resolutions. Uh, I came across a couple other articles that cited some studies done at, at how good we are at keeping our New Year's resolutions. Uh, one, a 2000 study, 2007 study from the University of Bristol found that 88% of people who make a New Year's resolution fail. It's not a nice whopping 12% success rate. We're really doing well. Uh, another study, this one done by a private health company in 2015, was slightly more positive. It found that only 63% of the people who made New Year's resolutions failed. So 37% success rate, doing a little bit better. But in that study, it said that 63% of those who didn't keep their resolution, um, the 63% that didn't keep their resolution, of that 63%, 43 didn't even make it to a month. Um, 66% 66 barely made it out of the first month. And of the 63% that did not keep their New Year's resolution, 88% were done by March. So when we fail, we're quick to do it, right? We're quick to do it. And and there are a number of reasons that people fail in keeping their New Year's resolutions. Sometimes it's simply because of poor planning. It's poor planning. People set a resolution, but they don't then make a, a clear and realistic plan for how they're going to keep that resolution. Uh, they, they, Find something that they want to change, lose weight, save more money, and it seems like a really good idea, but they never really lay out a specific and realistic strategy to accomplish that. So within a short amount of time, that really good goal that they've made gets swept away by all the busyness and just the demands, the daily grind of life because they never had a really good plan. Another reason for such a high failure rate is we try to do too much. We try to do too much. Instead of resolving to change one small area of our life, what do we do? We attempt to do a major overhaul. Hey, it's a new year. I've got this laundry list, like 25 things that I want to change about myself, so I'm going to commit to changing all of those things. But after a month, what happens? Or, or less. We're exhausted, right? We're exhausted because we have this laundry list we're trying to change, and so we bail. Or we bail because we lose sight of the benefits of the change that we're pursuing. Uh, and, and you know this, but... With every change that we make to our lives, there's a cost, right? There's a cost. If you resolve that you're going to spend more time with your family, that time's got to come from, from somewhere. That time's got to come. So there's, there's a cost. And when we make our resolutions in January, that cost often seems like a small thing to sacrifice. Oh, oh sure. I can spend less. I can eat healthier. I can exercise more. I, I can spend the time to get more organized, and it seems like a small sacrifice that we're making. But, but then once we're into the grind of daily life and we start to really feel the weight of those sacrifices, it's really tempting then to give up on our le- resolutions because it's, it's hard. We're, we're making sacrifices. And often we do give up because we've lost sight of the benefit. We've lost sight of the fact that the gain we're pursuing is worth the sacrifice that we're making. But we lose sight of that gain. We lose sight of the benefit. So we give up. 
Well, this morning I bring all of this up uh, because I want to talk to you this morning about a resolution worth making. A resolution worth making. And I want to talk to you about a, a commitment, a sacrifice uh, uh, that is worth making. Uh, a commitment that has tremendous benefits and, and a commitment that will impact every area of your life. This morning what I want to do is I want to encourage you to pursue a new year in the Word of God. A new year in the Word of God. I want to encourage you to commit this year to spending time regularly reading for yourself, not, not in a group on Sunday morning or in a small group Bible study or even just you and your spouse, reading for yourself the Scriptures. I want to challenge you this morning to commit to regular personal Bible reading. Now, as I say, that's what I want to challenge you about this morning. I imagine that there are several here this morning who have already made a commitment to pursue this in the past. And maybe you said in the past you heard some pastor or some friend say, hey, you need to commit to reading the Bible consistently, regularly, daily, read, being in the scriptures. And, and maybe said, oh, I'm going to do that. But you were like that, that 43% that I cited earlier. You only made it maybe you know, into the beginning of January. And then it kind of fell by the wayside. Or maybe you made it a bit further, but by the time you got into March... You know, you were so far behind on your reading schedule that you just set it aside. Or maybe you're one of those who, who you've kept through it the entire year. We just finish up the year. You just finish your reading schedule and you're ready to launch into it again. Or maybe you already have. But here's the thing. No matter your experience in the past, maybe if you started and you didn't make it very far or you've, you've done it every year, I can pretty much guarantee that nobody has been disappointed with the time they spent pursuing this commitment that I'm talking about this morning. Nobody's been disappointed. As I've talked to people over the years about their Bible reading, I don't usually hear people say, well, that was a waste. And that was a waste of time. I wish I'd rather spend that time doing something else. I wish I'd watch more TV or listen to more music or slept more. I mean, that was a waste. I don't hear people say that. Um, Whether people are hit and miss in their Bible reading or they are faithful every day, I usually don't find people who are disappointed in pursuing the commitment that I'm talking to you about this morning, the commitment of being in the Word of God. So this morning, again, that's the challenge I want to call, I want to challenge us to pursue. That's the commitment I want to challenge us to pursue. I want to challenge all of us to pursue throughout this next year a commitment to regular personal Bible reading. But what I want to do this morning is I want to help you launch that commitment well. Again, sometimes we fail because we don't have a good plan or we lose sight of the benefits. And so this morning, I want to spend time helping you launch this commitment well. Maybe you're saying, yeah, Ryan, that's a good idea. I need to do that. But I want to make sure you, you launch it well. Or maybe you're saying, I'm still on the fence. Well, I want you to understand why you should do this and how you should do this. And so that's what I'm going to talk about in our time this morning. I'm going to talk about the why and the how of personal Bible reading. And I want to do that this morning because I... I truly believe that a year spent regularly in the Word of God is a resolution worth making. There's always, you know, it wasn't on the top ten list that I cited this morning, but it should have been up there at number one. This is a resolution worth making. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the, the why and the how. So let's begin by talking about why. Why make this commitment? Why commit this new year to reading for yourself regularly the Word of God? And there are a lot of places in the Word of God that we could turn to answer that question. But this morning what I want to do is turn to one of my favorite passages of Scripture, a passage that I believe gives us a a beautiful and powerful picture that that I'm hoping will motivate us to make this commitment. So take your Bibles and turn over to the very beginning of the Psalter, the opening of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 1. And this is where we're going to camp out here in Psalm 1 for a few moments. And a few moments as preachers speak for, I don't know, the next 45, 50 minutes. That's a joke. <laughs> Kinda. <laughs> but this is, where we're going to, this is where we're going to camp out for, for a few moments to answer our why question. And I really want you to hear and to see the message of this psalm. Because I think it will really motivate us to pursue this commitment in the new year. So look at the psalm. You're there. Psalm 1. Notice how the psalm begins. What's the word, the first word, especially if you've got the ESV? What's the first word? Blessed. Blessed. And that term, blessed, it's it's an important term in the psalm. It's an important term in the Psalter itself. And it's really an important term in all of the Bible. 
And, and here, look at it. It's not just the first word of this psalm, but think about it this way. This is the very first word in the entire Psalter itself. So if you're coming into the doorway of the songbook of the scriptures, what's the very first word? This word. Um, and so it's an important word, and it's important that we understand what this term means. Now, this word that's translated here as blessed, it could also be translated as joyful or happy or experiencing God's favor, experiencing God's favor. This is a term that describes the state of life lived as it should be lived. Life lived as it should be lived. It is life in harmony with God. That's the blessed life. It's life lived as it should be lived. And what we find in the rest of this psalm is a picture of that kind of life. That blessed life. That life as it should be lived. That life in harmony with God. Now, there are many who have characterized this psalm, Psalm 1, as a wisdom psalm. And what that means is that this psalm gives us a picture of how we should approach life. Um, In other words... Those who exercise a skill for living. And that's what, that's in the Bible, that's what wisdom is. It's a skill for living. So what the psalm is showing us is those who exercise a skill for living live this way. They live this way. They live in wisdom. The psalm is wisdom teaching. It actually opens with what we could call a wisdom promise. It's a promise of a blessed life. Promise of a blessed life to a man or a woman who pursues what is described in the psalm. And I take the time to point that out because I think that's powerful motivation for us. This is a picture of a blessed life. If we want 2017 to be the year of living a blessed life, and and that doesn't mean, don't misunderstand me, that doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy, you know, peaches and cream. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that we will be approaching life as we should with a skill of living life as we should live it. If we want 2017 to be that kind of year, the psalmist here lays out for us the path that we should pursue. Lays out the path that we should pursue. And what does the psalmist say that we should pursue? Well, look at the text here. First, he starts off by saying what we shouldn't pursue. What we shouldn't pursue. The psalmist here begins with a negative picture. He shows us what those who pursue a blessed life avoid. The psalmist writes there, look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks, what does it say? Not, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So that's what's to be avoided if we want a blessed life, life as it should be lived. But notice the way that the psalmist describes this negative picture. This is really neat the way this kind of lays out here. Notice the progression here in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. You see the progression there? Walks, then what? Stands, then sits. And this is a progression of involvement and comfort. Walking becomes standing, becomes sitting. And notice what the involvement is in. Okay, this is, he's saying, he's warning, don't go this way. But, but look at that way. What, what is this involvement in? Look at, it is in, look at the text. The council, the way, the seat of who? The wicked, sinners, and scoffers. And, and those three terms, uh, the wicked, sinner, and scoffer, those are terms that are used throughout the Psalms, throughout the wisdom literature in the Old Testament to describe those who are anti-God. Those who are anti-God. It's those who live lives opposed to God. Th- those who want to go their own way. Do their own thing. Those who want to live according to their own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. And that, that's really what the psalmist is describing here. He's painting a picture of the, the wisdom of those who are anti-God. The wisdom of, if we can say it this way, this world. This world's anti-God system. And he's painting a picture of their wisdom. Their counsel, their way, and, and their seat. Which that's describing a judgment seat. So in those ancient cities, there would be those, the elders of the city who sat around in judgment and they sat there in their judgment seat. And so that's the picture being described there. It's a picture, this opening verse of the anti-God wisdom of this world. And, and by showing this progression, walks and stands then sits, um, the psalmist is warning against this dangerous assimilation into the ways 
of this world. How does it start? First, you walk in their counsel. Then you stop walking and you start doing what? Standing. You start standing with them. Okay, so there's identification. And then finally, you take your seat among them. And you end up one more of this world's cynical crowd. Cynical of God's truth. Cynical of God's ways. Cynical of God's promises. You are then seated with the scoffers. So that's the the dangerous assimilation that the psalmist is warning against here. Walking becomes standing, becomes sitting. And, And here's the thing I just want to remind you of. This is a very easy assimilation to fall into. It's a very easy trap to fall into. Um, it starts with walking according to the wisdom of the world. And, and, and think about how easy of a trap that is to fall into. Walking in the wisdom of this world. We are inundated with the wisdom of this world, are we not? It, it, we are hearing it all the time. This world's approach to life, uh, it's wisdom that's contrary to the ways of God. This, this world's worldview is being preached at us all the time. I remember years ago when I was in youth ministry, I always used to tell the kids, you're hearing sermons all week long. You're having the world's worldview preached at you all week long. You hear it in the movies that you watch, music that you listen to, books that you read, the the news stories, whether they're real or fake, that people devour. You're, You're hearing sermons Driven by the world's wisdom all the time. And here's the dangerous thing. That wisdom appeals to us. Because it appeals to what? Yeah, it appeals to our flesh. That's why the world loves it. Because it appeals to the flesh. Our fallen hearts love it. So it's, it's so easy because we're inundated with it to find ourselves buying into it. We end up walking in the wisdom of this world. I'm not saying don't ever watch a movie or read a book or, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying be aware of what is going on. There is a worldview being preached to you through those things. So be aware and realize how easy it is because it appeals to the flesh to find yourself then starting to make decisions and judgments that way and starting to walk in that wisdom. And then as the psalmist is painting this picture here, walking in that wisdom then becomes comfort. It becomes comfortable. It becomes standing. Before you know it, you've taken up your residence with the world. You're, you're identifying with their wisdom. And, and by say identifying with their wisdom, identifying with them, I'm not talking about in the, in the biblical way like, okay, I identify with the world as we're all sinners, right? And we all need Jesus. So we can all, we're all identified together. I'm not talking about that kind of identification. I'm talking about we start to identify with their wisdom. We start to value what they value. We start to build our hope on what they build their hope. What do they build their hope? Money, power, pleasure, relationships. I mean, those kind of things. So you start making a life centered around pursuing those things. Things that this fallen world pursues. You stand with them. And before long, what happens from walking to standing, is then you find yourself joining in their rhetoric. You join in their rhetoric. You start to judge things the way this fallen world judges them. You start to speak their speech. You start to ridicule what they ridicule. You hear yourself saying things like, can you believe so-and-so gave up that great paying job? Now, I know that job's coming with a lot more stress. It'll put a lot of stress on their marriage. Their marriage might not even make it. But can you believe they gave up that job? I mean, jobs like that, how rare is that to come along where you can make that kind of money? And you find yourself valuing what the world values. Or say things like, well, I understand why she would leave him. I mean, I know they've been married a long time, but he's kind of a loser. And, and she really doesn't love him anymore, so I understand. Or how about this one? Love is love. Love is love. Why can't people just love who they want? What business is it of ours? Sometimes those Christians can be so narrow-minded and judgmental. And you find yourself saying those same things that the world is saying. We find ourselves saying things that sound just like the world. Before we know it, we are sitting with the scoffers. We're scoffing at the things that God values. Love is love. No, 
God defines love, amen? And it's sad. What so often is defined as love is, is fleshly driven lust. But here are people, even in the church, say, well, love is love. You know? And so we start scoffing at the things that God values and downplaying the things that God says this is the way it should be. We start sounding just like the world. And so this is the dangerous path of assimilation. We walk in the counsel of the wicked, then standing in the ways of sinners, and finally sitting in the seat of scoffers. And the psalmist is warning us here, mark this out, the psalmist is warning us that this is not the way of the blessed life. That's not the way of the blessed life. Again, look at what he says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Assimilation to this world's wisdom is not the way to live life as it should be lived. It's not the blessed life. It's not the blessed life. So then the important question is, what is? What is? Well, look at verse two. Look at verse two. And here the psalmist shows us a different delight. He tells us that blessed is the one whose delight is not found in following after the wisdom of the world, but instead whose delight is, what does it say? Delight is where? In the law of the Lord. Whose, and this is so important, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's where this one finds their joy, their pleasure. That's what that word delight means. That's what it means. It doesn't describe something that you simply tolerate, something you simply endure, something you put up with. Oh, got to spend some time in the Bible. Instead, it speaks of something in which you find joy and excitement and pleasure. And here the psalmist speaks of one who finds those things in the law of the Lord. He's speaking of one who finds delight in God's ways as revealed in God's word. A few psalms later, Psalm 19, verse 10, the psalmist there says this, more are they to be desired, and the they that he's talking about there is the scriptures, more are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. So not, not the gold-plated stuff. Listen to what he's saying. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. This is more precious to the psalmist, he's saying, than a lot of the really good gold. Do we, do we think of it that way? He continues, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That was refreshing. That's what he's saying. And the psalmist who's writing that, that's a heart delighting in the word of God. I want this more than gold. This is sweeter to me than honey. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's the heart that's being reflected there. It's a heart that delights in God's word. But why? Why find such delight in God's ways as revealed in God's word? Hold on to that question for a moment. We're going to answer that. But first, I want to further explore here how the psalmist delights. I want to explore the psalmist's description of this expression of his delight. Look in, in our text here in Psalm 1. Look at how the blessed one expresses his or her delight in the law of the Lord. What do they do with God's law? How do they approach it? What does the psalmist say here in the text? On his law, he what? Meditates day and night. He meditates on it. So those who are pursuing this blessed life express a, we'll, put it, we'll say it this way, a thoughtful delight in the word of God. Express a thoughtful delight in the word of God. They don't just say, well, yeah, I like the Bible. There's some good stuff in it. We got, every once in a while, crack it open and see what's there. Um, they're not those who just you know, do the verse a day Bible app so they can put it up on social media. That's not what this is talking about. Their approach is deeper than that. They take time to think and to think deeply about the ways of God as revealed in the word of God. They chew on it. They savor it. They, they expose their minds and their hearts 
to God's ways as revealed in God's word. That's what it means to meditate, to chew on it, to savor it. Too often when we hear this word meditate, we often think of Eastern meditation, which is an emptying of the mind. You sit there and you try to clear your mind of everything. That is not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is not an emptying of the mind. It's a filling of the mind. It's a filling of the mind. It's, it's filling the mind with, with truth, with God's truth, in order to, to combat our fallen hearts and our fleshly thinking. Do we need that? Yeah, we need that. We need that all the time. I don't know about you. Yeah, I do. I'll just say it that way, though. I don't know about you, but I know about me. I got a fleshly heart. I got fleshly ways of thinking that need to be confronted all the time. So I need God's truth filling me to confront those things. I need to think. I need to think deeply about these things. So biblical meditation is taking God's truth and dwelling on it, contemplating. Let it teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness, to borrow Paul's language from 2 Timothy. That's what biblical meditation is all about. And here we see this blessed one pursue this meditation, this thoughtful delight, as what I'll say is a regular delight. It's a thoughtful delight that is a regular delight. The psalmist says, on his law he meditates how often? Yeah, every couple of months he pops in and thinks some things over. no. This is his or her habit. It's a regular part of life. It's not something that is occasional or infrequent. You see, instead of walking and standing and then sitting in the wisdom of this world, the blessed one is regularly, regularly bathing their minds in the truths of the scripture. They are regularly drinking from that fountain and they are drinking deeply from that fountain but why why are they doing that why this delight in the law of the lord why this regular meditation on god's ways is revealed in god's word why this pursuit of the scriptures why commit to regularly being in the word of god this new year well look at our text look at the promise that the psalmist gives next and i gotta tell you i love this part of the psalm I love this part of the psalm because this is part of the psalm that grabs me by the shirt collar and says, pay attention. Look at this. Look at this promise. Look at verse three. Here's the picture of the blessed life. What does it say? He or she is like a what? Yeah, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, those who make God's word their delight find a stable, fruitful, blessed life. That's the promise. That's the wisdom promise in this psalm. But, but let's take a moment and explore this promise so we can make sure that we, we understand it. According to this psalm, what is the one who delights in and who meditates on the word of God? What is he or she life like? What is their life like? Are, are, they, are they blown around real easily, blown here and there? No, they're like what? Like a tree. They are stable. They are stable. They're like a tree planted, the psalmist says. And that, that picture, a tree planted, that's a picture of stability. And, and we know that that's a picture of stability because of what the psalmist uses to contrast with that image of a tree. Look down to verse 4. Look at verse four. There the psalmist writes what? The wicked are not so, but they are like what? Are they like a tree? No, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. That's the contrast there. That's the contrast to the tree. The psalmist is painting two pictures, one of the blessed life and the second of the life lived by the wisdom of this world. And one's like a tree and the other is like chaff, like straw. Chaff was what was left over when they were threshing the grain after they got all the grain. It was the strawy stuff that was there on the threshing floor and the wind would come along and it just blow it away. Just blow it away. And, and so that's the contrast being plant, painted here. Tree planted, straw. <laughs> Pretty powerful contrast, isn't it? One's stable, the other one is just here and gone. So that's the contrast. But, but why such a contrast? Why is there such stability? Such stability in the blessed life? Well, again, look at the text. What does it say? This tree is planted where? Where is it planted? What does it say? By streams of water. By streams of water. You see, 
There is such stability in this planted tree, this, this stable life, because it's planted by that which will sustain it. It's planted by that which will sustain it. It's planted by that which feeds it, that which produces growth in it. This tree is not planted out in a barren wasteland. It's not miles away from water. It's not all dry and shriveled up, being blown around like the chaff. Instead, this tree, mark it down, is planted right where it needs to be. Right where it needs to be. Right beside the life-giving water. Right there drinking it in. And beloved, that is a picture of a life planted in the word of God. That's a picture of a life planted in the word of God. This is the picture of the one who meditates day and night upon the law of the Lord. That, that, That deep, regular drinking in of God's truth produces stability in our lives. It produces stability in our lives. It will help us to weather the storms. It will help us to handle conflicts the right way. It will help us to find hope in that which will not disappoint us. It will help us to live for that which is true and right, giving us true purpose and deep joy. It will produce stability in our lives. That's the promise being given here in the psalm. That's the picture being painted. A life planted in the word of God is a life marked by stability. Marked by stability. But it will also be a prosperous, fruitful life. Look at verse three. Verse three continues. The psalmist says, this tree, it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Now there in the last sentence, the psalmist just kind of tosses the metaphor aside, right? And he just puts it bluntly. And all that he or she does, they prosper. They're fruitful. But what kind of fruitfulness? What kind of prosperity is being promised here in this psalm. Well, so there are some folks who, who read passages like this and conclude that God is promising material prosperity. God is promising material prosperity. Some, some who I would say are confused and others who I would say are simply wolves in shepherd's clothing. Um, they teach what is called a prosperity gospel. And they teach that God wants you healthy and wealthy. And so if you simply have enough faith in what... Yeah, I'm going to call people out here on this one. What they're really saying is if you jump through all the right hoops, if you give enough money, um, that, that then God will bless your life and all your diseases will be healed and your bank account's going to be overflowing. They teach this prosperity gospel. But here's a good question for us this morning. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what this passage is saying? And, and, and here's the thing. If it is, as some hold to, if that's what this passage is teaching, what are we to make of the lives of Jesus and his apostles? What are we to make of the lives of Jesus? I mean, think about the life of Jesus. I mean, if the size of your bank account and the soundness of your medical history is proportional to your faithfulness in God, well, then what in the world happened in the life of Jesus, right? I mean, was he a wealthy man? Did Jesus have all kinds of material possessions? You remember, Jesus said of himself, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? No place to even lay his head. We didn't even have a home to call his own. And was his life a life of comfort and ease? Remember, Isaiah 53 says, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So what do we make of Jesus? I mean, who was more faithful and more obedient than Jesus? Who delighted more in the word of God than Jesus? Anyone? No one. Yet he didn't have many of the basic material things that most of us take for granted. So if that's what this is about, what happened in the life of Jesus? Now, some people that I've talked to over the years will say, well, that's the life of Jesus. That's different. Um, He won for us all this prosperity through his suffering. He won for us this this blessings of, of wealth and health through the atonement. Sounds nice. But it doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. It doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. You see, a lack of material wealth and physical ease is not just witness in the life of Jesus. The same testimony is found in the lives of his apostles. It's found in the lives of those who faithfully followed him and left for us the model of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. 
And it doesn't look like, sorry, it doesn't look like new Mercedes and fancy suits. That's not what we see in the life of Jesus and his apostles. Again, think of, think of what we see in the scriptures. Think about the life of the apostle Paul. Paul was a man of great faith, amen? He was a man of great faith. So is, is his life marked by a lot of material wealth and health? Not at all. That man suffered greatly for Jesus. Listen to his own testimony. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what he says. And there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is defending his apostleship. And he says this. He's contrasting himself to these false teachers who are trying to pull away the Corinthians. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And what does he say next? Remember what he says next? Again, if, if the people who hold to this prosperity gospel are correct, this gospel of wealth and health, um, here's what Paul would have said. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. How do you know? Well, I got far more Mercedes. My, my beach house in Malibu, it tops all of theirs. My bank account is overflowing. Have you seen my medical history? Obviously, I'm a man of great faith. But is that what Paul says? No. Listen to what he writes. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a man, man. Because what Paul's doing here is embarrassing to him, but he's doing it to defend his apostleship for the good of those in Corinth. He says, I'm a better one. How do you know? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, because they thought 39 would kill you. I mean, 40 would kill you, so they gave you 39. Five times. I've said this in the past, but I wonder what Paul's back looked like. Five times. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, remember he was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift on sea, at the sea. And frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brother, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Sounds like your best life now, doesn't it? Everybody want to sign up for this? But why did Paul suffer like that? Was it because of a lack of faith? No, not at all. He persevered through all of that because of his faith. Because of his faith. And here's the point. His faith was fed by the word of God. His faith was fed by the word of God. You see, he was like a tree planted by streams of water. And he prospered. He prospered. What does that mean? What was his prosperity? If it wasn't bigger car, bigger house, if that wasn't his prosperity, what was it? Paul's prosperity was, put it this way, it was true prosperity. It was a legacy of godliness. It was a legacy of godliness. It was the gospel proclaimed to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. It was souls saved and people discipled. In following Jesus Christ. It was churches planted and missionaries sent out. It was a life lived for that which brings glory to God and that which produces fruit that will last for eternity. Guess what? You get more money in your bank account, guess what's going to (laughs) happen? You're going to spend it. You get healthy, guess what's going to happen? I'm sorry to tell you this. You're going to get sick again. And eventually you're going to die. Say The message was so uplifting this morning. Ryan told us we were going to die. But the point is, what we're seeing in the life of Paul, what we see in the scriptures, is this is true prosperity. It's prosperity in things that truly matter. Paul's life was marked by a prosperity in what matters most. In what matters most. And that's the promise that we too are being given in this psalm. Brothers and sisters, we can live lives that truly matter. Lives that truly matter. Lives that weather the storms. Life that produce a harvest for eternity. Lives that honor our God who saved us and lives that edify our fellow man. We can live a blessed life. Life as it should be lived. And it comes about as we are planted deeply and regularly drinking in the word of God. And that's the pursuit I'm challenging you to embrace this new year. 
I'm encouraging all of us to plant ourselves by these streams of water and feed ourselves on these truths, knowing that it will day in and day out, brothers and sisters, it will change us and will transform us. It's the, it's the one commitment you can make that will affect every area of your life. Every area of your life. And will also impact eternity. So that's, that's why. That's why you should make this commitment in the new year. Let's be a church full of people that are tr- like trees planted by streams of water that have these stable. And again, not, not everything's easy. Not you never make bad decisions. Not there's never conflict. But stable lives, able to weather these storms. Able to keep clinging to the truths of the gospel. Keep clinging to Christ. Lives that are stable and fruitful. Lives that are lived for what matters most. So that's the why. Now, really quickly, let me just talk about the how. How should you approach this commitment? I want to talk about this because I want you to take on this commitment, but be consistent in this commitment. Okay, So it's a good goal, but I want to have a good plan with it. Again, lots of times we fail... Because we all, oh, I'm so excited to do that. And we come out of here, we're all excited, but we have no plan, no idea, nothing laid out for us to follow. And so within a day or two or a month, it's fallen by the wayside. So let him talk about how, how we should make this commitment. And I really quickly, I just want to share with you some things that I, along with several others, have found very helpful in pursuing this commitment to regularly reading the word of God. Okay, so I'm just going to lay out a couple of different things here for you. The first one is this. Set a course for your reading. Set a course for your reading. And what I mean by that is have a plan. Don't just be random. Some people approach Bible reading like they're bobbing for apples or rolling the dice, you know? I need to read something from my Bible, so that's what I'm going to read today. And I hope it'll be really inspiring to me. And some people approach Bible reading that way. We're just going to throw it open and it's like we're spiritually bobbing for apples or we're rolling dice hoping we get something encouraging to us. Um, I want to encourage you, don't do it that way. And don't do it that way because here's the thing. That's not the way that the Bible was meant to be read. That's not the way the Bible was meant to be read. The Bible is not a collection of disconnected motivational sayings. It's not like you know Christian fortune cookies or something here, Okay. It's not this collection of disconnected motivational sayings. The Bible is one big story about God's plan of redemption. And it's laid out in the Bible, it's revealed in the Bible, and it's revealed through books. All these different books in the Bible. You have Old Testament books, New Testament books. You have historical books and prophetic books. You have books that are letters and books that are sermons and books that are prophecies. And each of those books is to be read, get this, from the opening to the end, right? Start in the opening verse of that book and you end in the closing verse of that book. And they're to be read from the beginning to the end of each book. And they're to be read seeking to understand their connection to all of the other books in the Bible's big story to understand how they all fit together. So, when you approach the Bible, don't just be random. Have a plan. Understand what's, what's there. And I'll tell you, if you approach it that way, you're going to stay much more engaged. You're going to stay much more engaged. Go, oh, I understand the point of this book. Or, oh, I understand how this book connects with these other books. Oh, I understand how it all connects together. Some of you who finished this last year reading through the scriptures. I know Buck was one of those. And he came and talked to me. I was like, man, Ryan, it's been so neat to see how all these Old Testament pieces connect together. It was some part of what kept you engaged, right, Buck? And so I want to encourage you that. Read the Bible the way it was written, to, the way it's meant to be read, okay? So have a plan. And this is where I believe a Bible reading plan comes in really handy. Now, there, there are a lot of different plans that you can find out there. There are plans that will take you through the Bible in an entire year. There are plans that will take you through the Bible chronologically. So as you're reading through the historical books in the Old Testament, it'll pull some of the prophetic books or the Psalms that were written at those times in there. There's plans like that. There's plans that, that if you just want to get your feet wet, you're saying, ah, Ryan, I don't know if I can make a commitment to all of the Bible. Read all that this year. There's plans that just give you the New Testament. And so there are plans like that. But but get a plan and follow through that plan. And they're, they're very helpful to have a plan. Um, this year, I actually found this plan 
Uh, and we have copies of this over on the information table, and it's on our Facebook page too. But it's, it's a great reading plan that really incorporates a lot of different elements. First, one of the things I really like is it's a five-day-a-week plan. Um, because sometimes we miss a day or we, we get behind. And so five days a week, you're reading. Uh, that gives you time on the weekends to either catch up if you miss something or to read something else on the weekends. Maybe you want to go and prepare for Sunday morning sermon or something like that. It gives you time to do that. So it's a five-day-a-week plan. It's also somewhat chronological. So it's walking you through the Old Testament uh, and putting those, those passages in there that are... Um, the, the prophetic books or things like that that are um, put in with the historical books. So it's somewhat chronological. So that's another helpful aspect of this plan. And it also has a New Testament reading every day. So each day you're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So again, if you just want to get your feet wet and you're like, I don't know if I can commit to read the whole Bible this year, you can follow along on the New Testament part of that plan. Um, but again, we have copies of this plan that are there uh, in the information table and also there on the Facebook page. And you say, well, Ryan, we're already a week into January. Aren't I already behind? Let me say it this way. Don't be so legalistic about those things. If you want to make a commitment, start that commitment today, okay? And start at the beginning and just keep reading. And if you happen to finish a week late next year, that's no big deal. Make that commitment to be faithfully in the word of God. So have a plan. Have a plan. And the next thing I found really helpful is to set a routine. Set a routine. And here's what I mean by that. First, set a time of day when you are going to be doing your reading. Um, Don't be random in what you read and don't be random in when you read. Schedule it. Put it on your schedule. Pick a time that works best for you. Put a schedule. Put a reminder on your phone but pick a time and be consistent with that. And, and for some of you saying, okay, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to schedule this. That means something else in your schedule is going to have to be set aside. Uh, for some of you, that might mean some sleep. Uh, some of us, it just means you know, less TV or reading or doing something else. Okay, But make the sacrifice. Make the sacrifice. And you know, some of you might be less sleep. Some of them might mean you have to use your uh, lunch break a little more creatively at your job. But, but find a time, pick a time, and put it on the schedule. And again, this is a commitment worth making. It's a commitment that's going to impact every part of your life. And if it's something that we value, guess what, brothers and sisters? We will find time for it. Amen? If it's something that we value, and Psalm 1 says we should value this, we will find time for it. So set a routine. First thing that means set a time. Also Pick a place. Pick a time and pick a place. Now, personally, I am blessed to have an office that I at my house that I can go into and I can shut my door and nobody's going to uh, bother me there and I can go in there and do my Bible reading. But for years, I didn't have that. So I had, I had my leather chair that I would go and I would sit in and do my Bible reading. Before the leather chair, I had the kitchen table. But those were my Bible reading places. And it helped me to be consistent by having a consistent place. Not just a consistent time, but a consistent place that I went to in which I did my reading. A place that was conducive to my reading. Now for some of you, a place that's conducive means you're going to have to buy some noise-canceling headphones. (laughs) Put those on. But pick a time and pick a place that's conducive to reading. And then the third thing in, in establishing routine is I would encourage you to establish a pattern. Have a regular pattern that you follow during your reading time. And I recommend having a pattern because a pattern helps you feel like you're engaged in something consistent. This is a habit. It's not something random or haphazard. And that's a really important part of establishing a new habit. Okay, there's, there's a pattern to this. And I'll just give you an example of my pattern. I'm not saying this is what you need to do. Just giving you some ideas. Uh, when I come to my Bible reading time, the first thing that I do is pray. The first thing I do is pray. And I ask God to help me with the spiritual exercise that I'm going to be engaging in. Ask him to help me with my Bible reading. Ask him to take time, help me take time to quiet my heart, make my heart sensitive to what I'm going to be reading. Do we need to pray that prayer? Yeah, we do. I also use that time to, to confess sin, to really come before the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I'm struggling with, 
and, and come into his presence and declare my dependence, my absolute dependence on his grace. And, and I'm coming into that time entering through prayer because I'm engaging in a spiritual exercise, right? It's not just about I'm reading this and checking it off on my list. That's not what I'm encouraging you to do. It's engaging in a spiritual exercise. It's meditating on the word of God. So as I come in, I begin by prayer. I want to get my heart focused. And then personally, for me to help continue to get my heart focused, I I read a prayer out of the book, The Valley of Vision. And I've shared about this book in the past here, but it's a, a collection of Puritan prayers. And I'm not saying you have to use this book. There are other devotionals out there. But the prayers in that book, they are so deep and so rich and so convicting that they, they confront me and they call me out of my laziness and my apathy and they really challenge me to think deeply about God and his ways. And, and when I'm coming into that time of Bible reading, I really need that. I'll just be real transparent with you. I struggle with laziness and apathy and just wanting to go through the motions. And so I need that to help confront me, help my heart focus. So I spend that time reading through one, and I even have a little reading schedule for working through the Valley of Vision. Um, So I'm doing that. Prayer, and the Valley of Vision, and then I get to my Bible reading. And as I read, I read thoughtfully. I read thoughtfully and prayerfully. read that section on the day's reading schedule. And again, I'll be real transparent with you. At times my mind wanders. So guess what I do? I go back and I read it again. And there's some days that Because of the schedule, I I don't get to all of the reading on that day's schedule. But I don't want to just make it checking off a box. You understand what I'm saying? So I go back through and and read. So I I want it to be profitable. Okay. So I read that. And then the final part of my, my routine, my pattern, is reflection. Because I don't just want to read something and then jump back into my day. I want to take a moment and reflect upon it and think about, okay, what's the significance of what I've just read? How do I apply what I've just read? And for me, a tool that I found very helpful in that reflection time is journaling. Now, this is not something for everybody, but it's been very helpful for me. I use journaling as a a tool for reflection. And way back in eighth grade, I had a teacher who encouraged us all to begin journaling. So I've been journaling since eighth grade and over the years. It's kind of incorporated into my Bible reading. So now I do Bible journaling. And so after I read the passage, I take time to write. Okay, what was this passage about? What struck me from this passage? How am I going to apply this passage? And sometimes it's a paragraph. Sometimes, as you can imagine from a guy who preaches sometimes 55 minutes plus, I'm writing a lot and it's five, six pages. But that's what helps me reflect on what I've read. It's my tool to help me meditate on God's word. Um, and several years ago, I came across an acrostic um, that it, it helps you to think about Bible journaling, and I've shared this with other folks, and it's been helpful to them. So I just really quickly want to share this with you, and maybe this will be a tool that you can use. It's called soap journaling. So it takes the acrostic of the word soap, and it uses that acrostic to run you through some steps for journaling. Just really quickly, let me run you through this. First letter... And the word soap is what? I ask that because I don't think you don't know that. I just want to make sure you're following with me. So the first letter is S, and that stands for scripture. And so as you're reading through your passage, and maybe you're reading two, three, four chapters, you look for a verse, maybe even a phrase in a verse, that really has jumped out at you from that reading. And you write that in your journal. You don't write the reference. I mean, you do write the reference, but you don't write just the reference. You write the actual verse. Very helpful to write the actual verse because it makes you slow down and think about what's in the actual verse. So I write the S, then I write the reference, and then I write out the verse. Then the next letter in the acrostic, soap, is O, and that stands for observation. And this is where you write out what the verse is talking about, what's going on in the context. Is this verse a key part in the argument being made in that section of whatever you're reading? Is this... A promise in this verse? Is it a warning? Is it a doctrinal truth? What, what is the doctrinal truth that it's teaching? So those are the type of things that you record under observation. And you don't have to write like five pages. <laughs> just a couple lines, paragraph, just taking the time to see what's there. And once you've written that down, your observations, you kind of understood what's there, 
The next letter in the acrostic, A, is application. Application. And this is where you really answer the so what question. What am I going to do with what I've just read? Is there a sin that I need to confess? Is there a promise that I need to claim? Is there a truth that I need to accept? I need to really let integrate into all of my life. How am I going to apply what I've just read? And I'll tell you two things here with this. One, this is where the flesh pushes back on me the most. And this is because this is such an important step. This is where the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where we put feet to the truth. The temptation is we read something, and we're like James says, you know, we're like that person who just looked in the mirror and walked away and forgot what they looked like, right? This is where we say, okay, this is what God says. This is how I'm going to apply. This is how my life is going to be different because of what I've been confronted by in the word of God. This is where we really put the roots down deep into what we're reading. So I'll tell you, it's an important step. A, in that little acrostic application, I'll tell you, that's where the flesh fights me the most. It's like the flesh is okay with me doing the reading, but if I have to take time to really think about how to apply it, oh man, there's, there's the battle. Okay, and then because it is such a battle, that's where the next part, the last letter in, in soap is so important, and that's prayer, P for prayer. And here you write out your prayer and you ask God, God, help me to apply what I've learned. Help me to cling to the promise in this text. Or, God, I come before you and I confess this sin that has been exposed in the text. Or, God, this truth that I've seen about the gospel so glorious. Help this to, to just capture in my mind and help me not to drift. You take and you write out that prayer to the Lord. So, again, that's just a helpful little tool for reflection. There are other ways that you can do a reflection, but I'd encourage you, take that time to reflect on what you've read. So, set a course, have a plan, don't be random, set a routine. Pick a time, pick a place, and establish a pattern. Last thing that I think is very helpful is encourage one another in this pursuit. Encourage one another in this pursuit. We are not called to this Christian life as a bunch of lone rangers. Amen? But in our American Western culture, that can be a real temptation, right? We're just going to do it by ourselves. We're a bunch of John Waynes, right? Don't do that. We are to encourage one another. We are to help one another. So as you make this commitment this new year, share it with other people. Share what you're reading. Share what God is teaching. I'll tell you, again, Buck has been such an encouragement to me this last year as he embraced this commitment this last year, and he would come talk to me all the time. Hey, Ryan, guess what I read today? Or... I read this today and I have questions about it. It was so encouraging to me. So do that with one another. Share what you're reading. Share what God is teaching you. Share how you're reflecting on the text or share the questions that you have. And then ask each other, what have you been reading? What is God teaching you? And I'll say, as I say that, don't make it a legalistic tool to walk around and judge of one another. You know, I don't want to see that person because they're going to come ask me what I read. And I haven't been in the Bible in a week and a half. You know? Don't make it a legalistic thing, but let's encourage each other as we make this pursuit. Let's encourage each other to spend this new year regularly in the word of God, because as I said earlier, a year spent regularly in the word of God is a resolution worth making. It's a resolution worth making. Would you pray with me? Again, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have not left us to, to fumble around and try to figure out this world or try to figure out our hearts or try to figure out our relationships or try to figure out you. But you have laid things bare in your word and it's all there. And we praise you for that. We praise you that there in the word of God, not only do we see who you are, and who we are and how we have turned from your right way and sinned against you. But there in your word, you lay out so clearly from cover to cover the hope that is there for sinners like us. We thank you for revealing to us the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you that, that it's there from cover to cover. And that's the, the big story of the Bible and that we can spend time each day treasuring that. Plumbing the depths of that. Delighting in that. You are Savior God. So I pray for each and every one of us here today. I pray that we would take really seriously the words of Psalm 1. This this beautiful wisdom promise. And that you would help our hearts, our hearts that are, are so prone to go, yeah, that's a good thing, but... And then to come up with a whole bunch of excuses. I pray that your spirit would help our hearts to see that this is a commitment worth making. And this is a commitment that will impact every aspect of our life. And this is a commitment that will bear fruit for eternity. This is this opportunity to delight in our relationship with you. So I pray for the empowering ministry of the Spirit for each and every one of my brothers and sisters here today. That you would help us to commit this new year to your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.